The following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, November 19th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Tim, I am one of the pastors here. Um, try to say it every time that I'm up here, but it is truly a joy to be able to gather together with you to sing God's praises, to pray together, and to hear God's word. So I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here uh, with you. Um, uh, last week, our hospitality events team put on a fall festival. And uh, it was amazing. Uh, uh, if you didn't make it, I hope you're able to come next year. Uh, we had about 200, 250 people in the church that came out for it. We had people here in the Woodland Heights neighborhood join in as well. Um, so it was a really fun time. And as much fun as it was for everyone, um, I don't know that anyone was ex- as excited as my daughter Clementine. Um, we were walking with Pastor Raymond over to the park down the street. And, and her excitement just seemed to be growing with every step. And, and, and eventually, just in the middle of the street, with the fall festival nowhere in sight, she throws up her hands in the air and just goes, I'm so excited. I just love festivals. Um, I, as her dad, I can speak into this. She's never been to another festival before. Um, but uh, I think every time she hears that word now, she's going to be very excited. So thank you to all those who helped uh, to make that happen and to make my daughter very happy. Um, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Hebrews, uh, taking a close look at how the author of Hebrews is making a compelling case that Jesus is better than everything and everybody that we would set our hope and our confidence on. The people that are being written to, the, the Hebrews that are being written to, had started to follow Christ. They had started to uh, walk after him, um, trust, say that they trusted in him, and yet uh, difficult situations and, and difficult people had led them to consider leaving Jesus behind, to stop following after him. They were good with Jesus as long as their circumstances were good. And I think this book is so pivotal for us today. We live in a a society and a a culture um, that many of us, uh, many of the people that you know, say that we trust in Jesus. Um, But for too many of us, our hope is often really based on Jesus and something else. Um, I I have hope and I feel fulfilled as, as long as I have Jesus and my family, as long as I have Jesus and a good job, as long as I have Jesus and enough money, as long as I have Jesus and, and the people I vote for are in power, I have hope as long as I have Jesus and enough other good things are going on in my life. Now, just, just, just hear me, that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not if you have Jesus and enough other good things, then you'll have hope and fulfillment. The message of the Bible is that Jesus is perfect. He is so good, he is so complete, and he has done so much for us that we don't need anything else. There are good gifts that God gives us, but our hope and our fulfillment is not dependent on them. And for the Hebrews, those additional things, those additional people that they were putting their hope in that they felt like they needed, they, had, they felt like they had started to fail them. Everything else that they had put their hope in apart from Jesus, it felt like it was starting to go away from them. They were going through trials and suffering 
And they were left with just Jesus. And they were seriously questioning, is Jesus enough? And that's why this book is so pivotal to us today, because it makes us confront the question, is Jesus enough? Without all those other things, is Jesus truly enough? Is Jesus enough to keep going, to keep believing, to to keep hoping in, even in the midst of persecution and suffering? So Hebrews shows us how great and how perfectly complete Christ is. He is superior to everything else that we can put our hope in. There is no part of our lives that he does not meet our every need. So we don't need to look anywhere else to find that. Our hope is never grounded on Jesus plus other things. He is perfect. He is complete. And Hebrews shows us clearly that he is near. He is not simply far away yelling at us to keep going. He is close to us, and he is inviting us to come close to him because he has come so near to us, as Advent will remind us soon, he is God with us. Seven times in the book of Hebrews, God tells us to draw near or to come close to him. These Hebrews were were moving away from Jesus, and the author is reminding them again and again that Jesus wants them to come close, to be near. In Hebrews chapter 8 shows us all that God is doing, all that Christ has done to bring us close to him. This chapter reads like a father reaching out to his children and saying, I'm going to do everything, everything for you. I'm here for you. I'm close. I want you to be close to me. So let's pray together again, and then we'll get into chapter eight. Father, um, help us, help us today. It's, it's so easy uh, to have uh, distractions and to be thinking ahead. Um, Father, we, we, we want to hear from you. We want to be close to you. Um, Father, we thank you that uh, because of Jesus, you have come so close to us. And so I pray that you would remind us of that today and then help us to see clearly uh, your word, your message to us, and how that impacts and shapes our lives. Uh, thank you for each person here. Um, uh, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together like this. We, we thank you and praise you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Pastor Mark, uh, the last couple of weeks, has led us through Hebrews 6 and 7. And really the past few chapters of Hebrews up until um, 8 has really been focused on Jesus as our better priest. Uh, this is a, a really important point to the Hebrews, and it is important to us today. And so he continues to show us why Jesus is our better high priest. The author starts here in chapter 8 by ensuring, by, by making clear that we understand what we've been talking about. He really wants to drive this point home. And so in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, he says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. The author has been talking about Jesus as our high priest for several chapters. So clearly, this is an important point, but he takes a moment. He just says, I... I, Just so we don't get lost in this, just so you don't think something else is going on, I want you to know 
the actual point. Here's my point in talking about the priest over and over and over again is that we have this high priest. His point was not to simply slam the old way of doing things, to, to put down the old priest. He's not trying to paint some grand vision of a great high priest and then telling them, hopefully, maybe someday we'll find out who this is. Uh, the author has been talking over and over again about the importance and the necessity of this high priest. And so he wants to make sure that we know, that it is clear, we already have this high priest. We have Jesus. In these verses, he shows us several reasons then how Christ is our better high priest. How is Jesus our better high priest? We first see that, that, that as, as this primary role of, of priest was really to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. And Jesus had finished that work. No priest would ever have to make a sacrifice again. When he cries out on the cross in John 19, verse 30, he says, it is finished. It is finished. The work of sacrifice was complete. Forgiveness of sins. We have such a high priest who has sat down, who is seated at the right hand of God. As Mark talked about last week, no earthly priest would ever sit there wasn't a chair to sit on in the tabernacle because their work was never done. It was never finished. So they had to remain standing. I'm not super fond of hiking. Um, I, kn I know you probably weren't looking at me and thinking, Tim probably likes hiking. Um, the last time I went hiking, which was a, a really long time ago, don't ask me how far back. I went with some friends who knew I didn't like hiking. And so they convinced me, because they're big hikers, they, they convinced me by saying words that were just not true. Um, they, they said, I know a really easy trail. Um, if a hiker ever tells you that, just look at it on the line and say, you're lying. I know you're lying. So we went out on this real easy trail, uh, which just wasn't a trail at all. We just started off at the bottom of a mountain, and we started walking up that mountain through the forest. Um, and we went for hours and hours, and there was nowhere to sit. Um, I keep going, and I'm just looking for something, some log that's not covered in poison ivy to sit down. And I just keep thinking, all I want to do is sit and never hike again. Um, isn't that reasonable? And then I realized, I think there's a reason that there's no place to sit. And about halfway through, it really hit me hard. The reason there's no place to sit is because we're never going to stop hiking. Um, this is going to be the rest of my life. Sitting as a priest meant that the work was over. The job was done. And so when Jesus sits on the throne as our high priest, this means that his work was finished. As long as they kept standing, they had to keep doing this work. But when Jesus sits down, he proclaims it is finished. He had perfectly and completely accomplished the work of providing a sacrifice. And then Hebrews shows us that Jesus was a better high priest because... First, he finished the, the, the work, and he is a better high priest because he gave a better sacrifice. Verse 3 points to this. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. The old priest would be sacrificing animals every year for their entire life. 
Every year they would go in and do it again and again. Thousands of years, the priesthood just kept killing more and more animals. And yet, they were still not able to, to completely and totally forgive someone's sins. Jesus comes and provides the better sacrifice. Jesus was not just the priest, but he himself was the sacrifice. He did something that not one single priest had ever done before. There was no priest before him that said, you know what? These animals have to stop. I'll offer myself. He said, we don't need to keep this going. We don't need to keep killing all these animals. I will give myself as the sacrificial lamb. These people had known the old ways of, of the priesthood for generations. They had lived in this. They lived by always going to, to a priest and then a new priest and having that priest make sacrifices on their behalf. And the author is saying to them and to, the, and to us, we have something better. Jesus, our, our, our priest is more powerful than any earthly priest. Jesus has finished the, the, the work of sacrifice. It is completed. But it it doesn't mean that he doesn't still minister and serve on our behalf. So the, the, the work of sacrifice was finished, but in our high priest, we find someone who is still ministering on our behalf. Jesus is a better high priest because he, he ministers on our behalf directly to God the Father. Verse 2 says that he is a minister in the holy places. So while the work of sacrifice is complete, he is still serving. He is still ministering for us. Jesus is not saying, I've done the work, it's finished. Now let's just see what happens. The sacrifice is complete, our sins are forgiven, and Jesus is still at work, interceding on our behalf. He is praying for us. He is close to us to be a very present help. He has gone to prepare a place for us. He is providing strength for us when we are weak. He is compassionate and caring when we feel hurt and alone. He promises to be with us even until the ends of the earth. He is at work on our behalf. He serves us in ways that no human priest ever could. And then Hebrews shows us that Jesus, as our high priest, also serves in a better place. Jesus serves not in a man-made tabernacle, but in the true tabernacle in heaven. This is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1, and then we'll skip to verses 4 and 5. It says again, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And it says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In the Old Testament, the, the, the tabernacle was a copy or shadow of the true tabernacle, of the true tent. The priests, they served as a copy or a shadow of the true high priest. They were never meant to be seen as, as more than that. Jesus serves as our high priest. He serves as a minister in the holy places, the true tent in heaven that God himself set up. He serves as priest and minister while seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The old priest would take our sins and make sacrifices on our behalf. But the people, the people can never get close to God. 
The earthly tabernacle was set up so that people who were not priests could not truly draw near to God. They had to have someone do that for them. The way the tabernacle was set up, it had an outer court that everyone could go into. And then they had a room called the holy place that only the priests could go into. And then there was the holy of holies, the most holy place, which only the high priest could go into once a year. And that was where the actual presence of God was. It was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by this thick veil. No one besides a high priest once a year could go in there or they would die. If you weren't a priest, and especially the high priest, you weren't getting very close to God. Someone had to do that on your behalf. This holy place, this earthly tabernacle was there to show us, to illustrate for us that because of our sin, we can't get close to God. That was the old way. But in Jesus, we have something better. In Jesus, as our high priest and, he- and, and serving in heaven, Whereas the true tabernacle, that changes. We needed someone to go before God for us. And he has done that permanently because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And because he has risen and lives forever in heaven, he is seated together with God the Father. He became the way for us to get close to God. He calls us now to get close to him, to draw close to him so that we can be close to God. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 19, we are told, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Because we have this great high priest and he is over the house of God, then we get to draw near with a sincere heart. Hebrews 4 tells us to run boldly or to draw near to the throne of grace. In the old tabernacle, people like you and I couldn't get that close to God. But because Jesus is is both seated at the right hand of God, and because he has also drawn near to us, he has come close to us, now we can come close to God. We can draw near to to the throne where God our Father sits. The way the old temple was set up, we knew that God was there, but we just couldn't get that close to him. We are, but with Jesus, we are brought close. We can draw near. Verses one and two again say, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Hebrews 9.24 says it very clearly. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself to appear for us in God's presence. He's not serving us from a place that is is temporary or that will fade away. There are no cracks. There will never be foundation issues. He is serving us from a tabernacle that will exist, that will go on into eternity. He is serving us in heaven itself, appearing on our behalf, ministering on our behalf before the presence of God. So the author shows us clearly that we have a better high priest And he is serving us from a better place. And then Hebrews shows us that we have been given a better covenant. In Christ, we have received a better covenant. This is verses 7 through 9 of Hebrews 8. It tells us, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them. When we start throwing around words like fault and God, we get into a tricky place. It's difficult to know what that means. What does that actually look like? The faultiness, though, of the first covenant, which was the Mosaic law that God had provided, was not that God gave bad commands. It wasn't that he set out rules. It was that the people had bad hearts. The, people, the problem with the Old Covenant is that it was, it was taken by a people with, with, with bad hearts and sinful hearts as a list of rules and laws to follow. The people had taken it as completely external. Just give us a list of things to do. The Old Covenant didn't provide the internal power, the internal motivation to live in light of those laws. The old covenant was found faulty because we couldn't actually keep the laws perfectly. Even when we keep the rules well, we find ourselves becoming prideful and self-righteous and we fall short. Our daughter um, uh, had just turned seven years old and so she's old enough that she now has certain chores and jobs to do at home. And uh, when we remind Clementine of those chores, she's got into the habit of saying, got it and giving me a thumbs up and then running away really fast. Um, it's, it's, it's very cute, but like 95, 95% of the time, she does not, in fact, got it. Um, and, and so uh, one of her jobs is that when she gets home from school, she needs to go outside and play with the dog. Um, simple rule. Before she gets a snack, before she starts playing anything else, she's supposed to go outside and play with the dog. So the other day, I reminded her, you need to take the dog outside. To which she quickly replies, got it. Um, she heads downstairs to take the dog out. Two minutes later, the dog is upstairs staring at me like she didn't do it, man. Uh, we're, we're definitely not outside. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. And so I go downstairs. There she is. And in two minutes, she's taken out every toy possible. She's created some new toys and started playing with all of them. And so I lovingly and gently ask her, what are you supposed to be doing right now? Well, she stares at me for maybe 10 minutes. Um, and then she goes, oh yeah, got it. Um, she, she takes the dog outside and, and literally another two minutes later, the dog is at the door staring at me through the glass and she's like, come on, this, this isn't happening, man. You, you gotta help me out here. So I go outside. I, I, Clementine has taken all of her toys outside and is playing with everything except the dog. Um, now, this is the same job that she's supposed to do every day. It's not a hard rule to follow. And yet, she ends up doing everything but what we ask of her. This is essentially you and me with the law. We've heard the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments. We're like, don't covet. Got it. Don't lie. Got it. Don't murder. Double got it. Um, 
And then we immediately walk away and we see somebody's house that's bigger than ours. And we're like, man, that's a good looking house. I really wish I had that house. We start to covet those things. We get into a difficult situation. We immediately turn and, and we've messed up something and we try to cover it up and we lie and we stretch the truth. We get mad and angry with someone and, and hopefully we don't kill them. But in our hearts, we don't like them very much. Uh, we read our Bibles in the morning when we hear what we're supposed to do, we hear the law, we hear God's rules, and in our minds, we're like, got it, no problem. And then a few hours later, we're doing those very things that we were told not to do. What was, what was the problem? The problem is not that, it, that there were rules. The problem was not the law. The problem was our inability to keep the law. Rules and commandments aren't the problem, but they do help reveal the problem. The law was not given to be merely obeyed. It was given to reveal that we can't perfectly obey. We couldn't be made perfectly righteous by the old covenant. That's why Galatians 2 verse 21 puts it this way. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. When we realize that no matter how hard we try, how good or not good we are at keeping these rules, that no matter what, we can't save ourselves. Then we get to the place where our heart is desperate for a savior. When we realize that all of our good works, all of our efforts to keep the rules and commandments will never be enough to save us, we'll never be able to do it perfectly. Then we call out to God and say, I need a savior, please save me. We see clearly our need for Jesus. This new covenant shows us clearly that what Jesus does for us is better than anything we can do for ourselves. That the finished work of Jesus, the, the work that he has done is better than our very best efforts to earn righteousness and to save ourselves. We have better things in Jesus. And then finally, we see here in Hebrews 8 that we have received better promises. Verse 6 we're told that, that there's a better ministry with a better covenant that is established, enacted on better promises. And these better promises just continue to reflect how God is drawing close to us through Jesus. These better promises show us clearly that he wants to be close to his people. The, verse, the first promise God gives us is in uh, verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 8. These are such, such beautiful promises. Hebrews 10, 8. We're told, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. God is going to use intimate, close language to describe his promises. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, God told the people what to do with his law. What to do with his commandments. He told them to basically put them everywhere. Write them down everywhere. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 8 and 9. God tells them to take the things that he has commanded them. And he says this. This is Deuteronomy 6, 8 and 9. Bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Those frontlets are essentially a band or ornament worn on your forehead, right between your eyes. Then we're told, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We were told, 
write these things down everywhere. Always keep them in mind. Always remember these commandments. The reason for this was that no matter what you were doing or where you were going, you would always be reminded of God's law. If you put it, in your, put it on your hands, put it between your eyes, if you're walking into your house, if you're walking out of your gate, you're always seeing these things. God wanted to emphasize that his word, his commandments needed to be followed. And so write it everywhere. God himself then wrote these commandments with his own hand on the stone to emphasize how important they are. When Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God, God wrote those commandments on tablets of stone. God himself wrote on these tablets. That's amazing. I used to work with historic documents, and I can tell you that when you hold something in your hand signed by Abraham Lincoln, you are in awe of that thing. You feel a little closer to history and to that person. That would pale in comparison to holding something written by the hand of God. And so God writes his law directly on stone tablets for them. He tells his people to write his commandments just about everywhere. He, w- he wanted them to know and to be thinking about it all the time. And yet, they still failed to keep his law. They still couldn't do it. They still couldn't keep those commandments. But then comes Jesus. And in him, we have a better co- covenant and better promises. And in this new covenant, God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Before, we had to write it everywhere. That's still a good thing to do. But now you're going to have it written on your mind and your heart. It's more personal. It's closer. God has come close to you and is going to put it in, in, inside of you. This is, this is God coming close to us. He's not just not just telling us to have reminders around the house. He places his word, his law into our heart. God takes it and makes it a part of us. It makes it a part of who we are. The first covenant had become a way of of outwardly doing some good deeds. It's not how it should have been. But because we are so sinful, it had only become an outward obedience. So the new covenant is better because God promises to literally change our hearts and transform our minds. And then again in verse 10, God promises, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, this intimate, close language. We all have this longing to belong to to, to something, to somebody. From from our earliest days when we look for friends and, and groups of friends, when we desire family, We want to belong to something. And God, our Father, looks at us and says, you belong to me. You are my people. I'm not ashamed of you. I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will will make you a people. The God of the universe looks at you and says, you are mine. You are a part of my family. Each year in our uh, community group, we do a Friendsgiving celebration, Thanksgiving, but way too early. And so um, we did ours this past week. Uh, we have done this uh, for 11 years now, and our community always does a game called Turkey Trivia. Um, uh, and, and, and I will, I will just tell you, I, in 11 years of setting up this game, I've never repeated a question. So I have a lot of weird knowledge about Thanksgiving. Um, 
The game is mainly made up of, of insanely weird and hard questions that, that have something to do with Thanksgiving, and nobody leaves feeling smart except me. Um, <laughs> And so, but one of the strangest things that I've learned, one of the strangest stories that I've learned is that in, in 1926, a, a woman mailed a live raccoon uh, to President Calvin Coolidge at the White House. And, and her purpose in doing that was to try to convince him to tell the country to start eating raccoon for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, I didn't make a single word of that up. Completely true. So... So this is what happens. The President of the United States receives this raccoon in a box in the mail, and he decides not to eat it. <laughs> he and his wife decide that they really like this raccoon, and they decide to keep it as their White House pet. The President of the United States, this is the leader of our country, saw a raccoon in a box and said, that needs to be a part of our family. Uh, that raccoon needs to stay in the most famous house in, in, the, in the world. And they cared for that raccoon. It was a part of their family for years. They built a tree house in the back of the White House for the raccoon. They gave that raccoon a name, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> When they went on vacation, literally when they went on vacation, Rebecca the raccoon went with them to all their trips. They looked at that raccoon and said, I'm going to give you a name and you're going to be a part of my family. That's about how worthy I feel when God looks at me and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I know it's not easy to consistently hear that we are not worthy of all that God has done for us, but it's true. And it just makes clear how good and gracious God is. That he does these things for a people that are so unworthy. So unable to, to do what he's asked us to do. And I am eternally grateful for the way that he sees me. He looks at us and says, I will, I will care for you. I love you. You are my beloved children. I will provide for you. You will be a part of my family. I'm going to make you a saint. I will make you a people. I will make you a new creation. He promises us because of Jesus, I will be your God and you will be my people. He wants you to draw near. He wants you to know that you are loved and that you belong. This is why verse 11 of Hebrews 8 completes this thought by emphasizing the closeness the intimacy, the knowledge that we now have in Christ. Verse 11 says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Knowing God closely and intimately, truly knowing God, having God's law written on our hearts, put it on our minds, that is not just for the priests, it's not just for the teachers, it's not just for the pastors or the leaders. In, their, in the past, there were, there were leaders who had special access to God. But now in him, from the least to the greatest, we all are going to know him. Know him intimately. Know him personally. He is our father. In Christ, we have something better. Everyone, everyone can know, truly know God. And then finally, God gives us one more promise in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. 
He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What an amazing promise. The old covenant sins were never completely forgiven because they were not completely removed. Not, not how God talks about them. As far as the east is from the west, they were covered and they were awaiting true and total forgiveness through the blood of Christ. We remind each other rightly and consistently that there is mercy and forgiveness for our sins. That's good. We need to remember that. But what a promise that your sins will not be remembered. They will be erased. God removes our sin so completely that it is like he has forgotten them altogether. He has dealt with our sins so completely that he does not think about them. The way my mind works, I have, a, I have a really good memory, and so I have a lot of ridiculous Thanksgiving facts and the history of sports sitting around in my head. But the other side of that is that I often sit around, and I, I just can't shake the memory of my own sins. I can't get out of my head my, my regrets, my shame. I feel often consumed by my thoughts as I, as I think through situations where I, I I know I should have done something differently. I know I should have said something differently. I just sit around and it keeps me up at night at times. I often also sit and spend way too much time thinking about the sins of others. I think about what I want to say to them, what I want to say about them. I feel like I just can't shake those thoughts off. Many of us have said when someone has sinned against us, I forgive you, but I can't forget. And that is very human and it's understandable. But it is also why these words are so remarkable. Because God doesn't say that to you. God doesn't say that to us today. The God who knows all things. The God who has existed for all time. The God who has known you before you even knew that you existed. The God who knows your heart in your mind, every thought that you've ever had, every motivation that you've ever had, he knows you better than you know yourself. That God promises, I will remember your sins no more. They won't be brought back up. The things that I wish that I could forget but just can't are the very things that God will not remember because of his great love for us and because of the work of his son, Jesus. That is a better promise than anything we can find in this world. Our Heavenly Father is not, like I am, consumed with remembering all the sins that we've committed against Him. He is not sitting up at night dwelling on the many things that we have said and done wrong. When God looks at us, He sees Jesus. He sees His Son. When God looks at us, He looks at the heavenly priest that is seated next to him and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ and our sins are gone. They are removed as if they never existed. Whatever you're putting your hope in apart from Jesus, it's just not that good. These are better promises that God gives to us now and it is the reason that Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ we have a better hope and a better confidence that will last into eternity. The death of Jesus for our sins 
is the foundation of this new covenant. It's the basis of these other promises, these better promises. We need Jesus. We don't need Jesus and a bunch of other things. If Christ had not died for our sins, we would not be God's people. We would not have the law written on our hearts or had our sins removed so far away that they won't be remembered. We owe all of that to Jesus. We owe all of that to Jesus giving his body and his blood and defeating the power of sin and death. This is why Jesus himself called the cup of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, the new covenant in my blood. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. We're going to take that Lord's Supper together. And we will again be reminded of what Christ has done for us. We will be reminded of his better ministry toward each of us. We will be reminded that we have a better Savior than anything else that we can put our hope in. We'll be reminded of all that Jesus has done And that leads us to believe and trust and hope in him alone. In that passage, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he takes and eats with them and breaks bread with them and drinks with them. And he he takes communion with them and he says to them, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When we take communion each week, we're remembering and celebrating all the blessings that are now ours because of this new covenant in Jesus. We are thankful for all that Jesus has done for us. All the thanksgiving that we can muster up We can never thank Jesus enough, and we don't have to. He is just that good. He has done so much today. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you are with us, genuinely. I want you to know you don't have to live every day in shame and regret. You don't have to sit and and constantly feel overwhelmed, remembering all the ways that you've messed up in your life. You don't have to try and figure out how to be righteous enough, how to do enough good works. You don't have to try and save yourself. Today is the day. Stop looking at yourself and everywhere else and turn your eyes to Jesus. Trust and believe in him. If you have never done it, it is the sweetest, greatest thing that you will ever do. He is greater and better than everything else in this world. He is better than everything else that you are putting your hope in. And he is inviting you to see him, to trust him, to draw near to him, to become a part of his family, his house. Any of us would love to talk to you about what it means to follow after Jesus. There's a tent outside. You can find somebody there. They can connect you with someone. You can find one of us who've been up here. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But during this time in the next few minutes, I would just encourage you to stay at your seats And really consider Jesus. Really think on on all that Jesus has done, all that you've heard today. And then for those of us today that are Christians, we need to remember that we don't need Jesus and all the other things. We don't need Jesus and, and a comfortable life and a successful job and a perfect family. 
There's going to be good things, but we don't need Jesus and all those other things to find hope and fulfillment in this life. We just need Jesus. We don't have to put hope in all the things of this world. All of our hope is in Jesus, and he will never fail us. So in a moment, you're going to come, and, and other members of God's family are going to remind you, serve you com- communion, and encourage you to consider Jesus. They will remind you that Jesus is better And they'll say to you, the body of Christ was offered for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. And for those that have trusted in Christ, take that bread and dip it into that juice and remember all that he's done for us. So let's pray. We'll take a couple of minutes to reflect and then we'll take communion together. Father, we come to you in thanks with thanksgiving because of all that you have done for us. We thank you for sending your son into this world so that we can know you, so that we could be your people, so that you could transform our hearts and our minds. We thank you that you sent your son into this world, that he lived, that he died, and that you raised him up. And because of that, we can now truly know what it means to be close to you, to know what it means to have life. Father, transform our hearts and our minds. Make us understand what it is to follow after you. May our, may our days be focused on thanks to you and living in light of what you have done for us. Do amazing works through it all. Father, we owe it all to you. We can take no credit for ourselves. We are thankful for that. Father, we, we, we love you. We thank you. I thank you for each person here. I pray that you would uh, just continue to bring these words to mind even throughout the week. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.